We continue here firstly with discussing Ellen's experience shaping China's legal system, specifically related to her perspectives on China's technology transfers. Again, it's important to emphasize that this interview was recorded on the 6th of May 2023, and Ellen's references to the Shanghai Film Festival throughout this episode referred to its iteration back in June this year. I myself am really interested in China's science technology innovation system. And you mentioned at the beginning, say, tech transfers. I was curious, could you, do you have any, like a very memorable story about the creation of a law related to tech transfers? You already mentioned as well, property rights. Do you have a particular story that was especially memorable? No, because the licensing of um, manufacturing technology is pretty simple, right? That's fair. That's fair. So, and but it was interesting to see what, industries they needed manufacturing technology in because it was it was like the whole society needed to be reinvented it was from the basic things like technology for carbon black which is the material that make the tires are made of to like you know those hot water like you have a, a thermos right you put your hot water and it stays hot all day. They actually needed that technology as well because foreign technology for thermos bottles was better than what they had. Elevator technology, um, m- machine parts manufacturing technology. Every aspect of the automotive industry needed technology transfer, every aspect of it. Um, it, it was just, there wasn't any industry where they had the technology available that would enable them to either provide products that could be sold internationally or compete with international companies. So they basically had to ramp up their whole industrial infrastructure. So uh, that was pretty interesting. And then the the stories of the uh, major thefts of technology um, that shockingly occurred for many, many years and, of course, are still occurring to some level. It was, um, you know, they didn't really have the patience in a way to wait for the, And they also didn't want to pay for it. Um, and so that is, um, there were some huge lawsuits, um, which I don't think I should go into, but they were shocking. Like they would basically have an industry which would, quote, go into a joint venture with an American industry or a Swiss industry. Um, you know, there was a lot of work with the pharmaceutical sector. There was a lot of work with the automotive sector. But, what, but sometimes what would happen is that although they had signed a joint venture agreement, they would basically blow up the joint venture as soon as they got what they wanted. And I'm not, I'm not an anti-China person at all, but I have to admit that um, they didn't, um, China as a whole did not feel that they needed to play completely by the rules of capitalist societies. And they didn't have the patience anyway to do that. But they also felt that, um, you know, the imperialists, the colonialists, the people who, you know, got them addicted to opium, the people who ripped them off, the people who imported their labor to build their railroads, et cetera, and then basically spat them back 
to China because they wouldn't let them like the Chinese exclusion laws in the United States, which it was fine to import the laborers, but when their work was done, they couldn't stay. They had to go back. They couldn't become U.S. citizens, even though some of them had been working in the U.S. for 20 years. They had a family. They couldn't stay. And this is um, part of how American colonialism works, kind of a backwards thing, like America didn't have external colonies, but by bringing in these workers and sucking them dry and then spitting them out, it was sort of like reverse colonialism, like we brought them to us to sort of just pick them clean and then send them back. And and so things like that, what we did to what the, um, the U.S. and the Brits and the French and the Italians and the Japanese did to China in the 1919 Treaty of Versailles, where China had been the um, ally of the Allied powers who were fighting the Germans. And they did that not because they liked the idea of becoming entangled in a Western dispute, but because they thought that maybe they could earn the respect of the Western powers and become part of the world community. The Western powers did exactly to them what America was doing to them, which is they basically imported a bunch of Chinese workers. It was called the Chinese, uh, I think it's called the Chinese Labor Corps. And they sent them to do um, the behind the lines work, um, it, mostly in France, uh, because that, that was where the main battle was being fought. But I think some in Belgium as well. And it was, you know, building, digging the trenches, building the bridges, um, dealing with, you know, hauling the weapons back and forth, making sure that all the inventory was there, running the um, cooking, you know, all of those stuff, backing up the troops. And there were a lot of Chinese, like there was something like 130,000 Chinese who were sent there. And um, then they were just sent home. Like they weren't allowed to stay. And they're just kicked out. So, and... Despite the fact that they'd done all that and helped the Allied forces win the war, they were basically cut out of the Versailles Treaty and sent home, and they didn't have anything to show for it. It was, and that's the thing that sparked the May Fourth Revolution. So basically, so the Chinese have a long memory, and everything they remember is what's been done to them by uh, Western powers and by the Japanese. So. They actually felt, and whether right or wrong, they felt that these people hadn't been playing by any kind of code of morality for hundreds of years in their dealings with China. And why do we now have to be the ones who do everything right and are so obedient? We should take something back, you know, from what they owe us. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're all right or they're wrong. I'm just saying that that was their mindset during the early years of the opening and liberalization and to some extent continues today. That's really fascinating. We continue here where the previous episode left off, focusing now on how cultural products which Ellen helps create and move between the US and China shape perspectives and relations between the two countries. So on the story you just told me, it really sounds to me that you that these cultural products can play a very important role in normalization 
between the United States and China. For instance, that these kids are then reading English books and that you co-produce movies between the United States and China, which are then screened in both places. And it might create an understanding in both in both countries of the other country. So do you feel you played a role then in normalization of relations? And could you tell me more about that? I don't know. Like that's what I do every day. It's like I can't tell you more about it. That is what I do, and that's what I'm doing. And I think the challenge is, I mean, I am a full-fledged participant in the, from beginning to where we are now, the relationship between the Western film industries and China. I have been very active, not just in terms of Hollywood and China, but in terms of the Australian film industry and China, um, the uh, export of Chinese films all over the world, including to Europe, um, the development of co-productions between, you know, Western um, screenwriters and directors who want to make movies in China, to Chinese screenwriters and directors who want to make movies outside of China. So yeah, I do that. That's what I do. But I think um, the challenge right now is that because of the geopolitical situation, um, there's really a tightening in terms of uh, what types of cooperations can go forward. And in fact, there's been, since 2020, there have been fewer and fewer co-productions uh, between China and the rest of the world. There have been very few Eastern directors who have actually been able to explore subject matters of universal interest in their movies, which means that there have been fewer Chinese movies being exported. There have been fewer Chinese movies participating in international film festivals, and there have been many fewer Western movies imported to China since 2020. And so what we're dealing with now is a period of constriction. And what I'm doing in this period of constriction is continuing to push very, very hard to keep the dialogue going. Like I'm on the firm every day with the Shanghai Film Festival because I've been at the Shanghai Film Festival every year for the last 20 years, except for the COVID years when it wasn't happening as a, you know, physical festival, but, uh, you know, they're the preeminent film festival in China in terms of interacting with the West, the rest of the world. And um, they've always had fantastic filmmakers, you know, go there and present their new movies or serve on the jury or whatever. Um, and now they're trying to kind of revive that. But the damage that's been caused over the last few years is really serious. So we're kind of like starting from a much lower level of cooperation. And I'm trying really hard to help them attract foreign filmmakers to go to the Shanghai Film Festival this year, but there's not, it's it's really going to be very hard. So this is what I do every day. I am also making movies with Chinese uh, filmmakers and with Chinese authors based on the IP of Chinese authors that are being made into screenplays for international movies. So I'm still deeply involved with Chinese creators, but not 
right now to shoot those movies in China, but to take their IP and make it into international movies because that's really the only thing that I can do to um, make things that we as the filmmakers are all proud of and that will be seen widely around the world um, and continue to be connected with Chinese creators. But it's not the way it used to be. Because if you want to make a movie in China now, it's very hard even to get a permit to shoot it. So you can't shoot any of these in China. You have to shoot them outside of China. But if they come out well, they may get imported to China. So just keeping that dialogue going is super important to me because I wouldn't want to see like the whole everything that I participated in building and, you know, the careers of all these people that I helped, that I worked with to just disappear because of this overall Cold War scenario that we're in right now. So we're trying to keep people, people on both sides like me who are working really hard to keep the dialogue going. Yeah. And before I move towards how this cold war was then to some extent accelerated to COVID. I was first want to ask, how do you think that these cultural products, right, these movies that then say, um, how do you think that then these co-productions or these American movies being shown in China or more Chinese movies being shown in the United States, how do you think that normalized relations, like if uh, the average American or average Chinese goes see uh, such a movie, how do you think that impacts, how do you feel that the, the things you create impact the normalization between the countries because people watching movies about you know people from the other country helps them understand what those people are like and you know what those what's funny about those people what's lovable about those people what's not so lovable about those people um how they live their lives you know what they value um how they feel about their families you know all these types of things it helps um through showing the reality of the other side, you also can come to see what the commonalities are. I mean, if you don't have that, it's really, really hard to build, you know, interest and trust between two countries. And right now, because there's none of that happening, it's all this very polarized dialogue that's happening on a geopolitical level, where on both sides, the only thing that Chinese people are hearing about Americans is caricatures of what Americans are like and vice versa. Like we, like most Americans have no idea what a real Chinese person is like because they've never met one, but they've heard all this bad stuff that's being said about them. And the Chinese, it's a little bit harder for them because young Chinese people now, you know, they grew up watching Marvel movies, right? And so- they think that they know what Americans are like. And up until recently, they were like, hey, these people are like really fun. They're funny. You know, they're interesting. They're quirky. They're this, that. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, no, wait, you're not supposed to like American people because they're bad. And so it's this cognitive dissonance. It's, it's really, it's bad. It's really, really bad. But it happens on both sides. So, you know... And about that, I wanted to move to what she already mentioned, like the how this accelerated cold war, and then like is this due to COVID, like in your industry? I think you see the same thing. 
perhaps to even more extreme extent, an academic exchange. It's like during COVID, it basically dropped to zero. And right now, it's very slowly crawling up again, but still very, very slowly. I think there are about 350 Americans right now studying in China. And I don't think those numbers will quickly catch up again to where they were before COVID. So especially also considering your own experience, how important it was for you, like being in China to understand China. And it sounds a bit like these movies can be as still like a, a massive people-to-people -people diplomacy, but you think you still need people-to-people -people diplomacy here on the ground in Beijing and other areas. How do you think that makes, that might create them biases among, amongst both sides on having this people-to-people -people diplomacy, and especially among China experts, if they're no longer in China while well, being China experts? It's devastating. I mean, most of my key creative partners who are Chinese have left, and they're living either here or in Europe or in the UK. So I'm still talking to my people all the time, but they happen to be here now. And who knows when, if ever, they'll go back. Because creative people right now can't fully function in China, right? So... Uh, and the Westerners, of course, who were living in China, they've almost all left, no matter what business they were in. Um, but particularly in the film industry, they've all left because they can't work there anymore. There's nothing. In fact, I think there's maybe a restriction even on having foreigners get a credit on the Chinese movie. So, focusing for a second, like on your own, like your own experience as a student, and then if. Um, and then compared to like students right now in China, if they're that low, if you only have say 250 Americans studying in China and this number does not pick up in the coming years, like how do you think that will influence US-China relations? Because it seems then to me that America's China's experts will no longer really study in China, set food to that extent and learn about China. How do you think that might influence things then? About well, then it'll just be left to the politicians to define the terms of the dialogue, and it will not be good. <laughs> there won't be there won't be any voices. I mean, right now, for example, if I, as a Hollywood person, were to really stand up and take a position defending in China on whatever it is, I would probably be um, criticized and maybe even blacklisted. I mean, it's like the McCarthy era. I don't know if you know about it. The tone of the American dialogue right now is pretty much the way it was during the McCarthy era, the way people talk about communists and China, and they don't even know what they're talking about. I mean, they don't even know how to pronounce like Xi Jinping's name. They don't. And it's crazy. The American brought networks still don't understand that in Chinese names, the last name comes first. So they all call Xi, they call him Jinping. It's like, who's that? I mean, the level of ignorance is so shocking. And I'm not taking sides in this because everybody is in a negative, polarized cycle. But uh, I'm just sitting here watching these people shoot missiles back and forth. I mean, figuratively, not not yet, literally. And I'm just talking to my people who are really thoughtful Chinese authors, screenwriters, filmmakers, and trying to find things that we can do together. Yeah, I recognize that, especially when you, like, when you criticize the ignorance, you're already, like, Talking about the ignorance, they already seem to be taking a side. And it's so difficult these days to then be a China expert. And 
Yeah, <laughs> I recognize that. How do you think this might develop over the next? Are you positive or negative? Do you think that the trend will continue? Of like, because MacArthur said it did, of course, end at some point, but it doesn't seem like this is going in the right direction. Or how do you? All I know is that I can do little things every day, just tiny little things, like helping a brilliant Canadian filmmaker who's been invited to the Shanghai Film Festival to get his visa. Just tiny baby step things to make sure that this filmmaker, who is going to direct a big movie for me based on a huge Chinese sci-fi IP, that he can actually physically be present in Shanghai and tell other filmmakers what he's doing. That, that would be a major thing. So that's all I can do every day just to move each project forward in whatever way I can. I think that's beautifully said. Um, I'm trying to do the same here myself in Beijing on, uh, as a student when speaking to people. Now I recognize the importance of it every day. Um, so I think I think it's probably time we move towards like a last question. and. I basically wanted to ask whether, I think we covered so much. I think we, we covered your experience as a student, uh, your experience working in industry. How does that relate to normalization? Um, is there anything further you wanted to talk about? And if Everybody realizes the complex, everybody who is engaged in this very complex, culturally specific uh, mix of what we're doing now is we're really trying to not let the Chinese intellectuals become a diaspora. They all want to stay engaged with China. They do not want to cut their relationship with their homeland. And they're all every single day struggling with how they can continue to be productive creators and intellectuals and in some of it, it involves very sophisticated technical uh, work that they're doing, engaging with AI and generating content with AI as their co-writers or whatever it is that they're doing. How they can continue to do that and at the same time keep their link with China because a lot of their genius comes from the fact that they were born into a country that has the richest cultural and religious continuous history of any country in the world. I mean, the language, the stories, the, you know, philosophical beliefs, the cultural organization, the social organization. China's a 2000 year uninterrupted history. And they, it's in their DNA. And if they were to cut that off, they would probably just die as creators. So part of why I think it's so fantastic to work with these people is because the, the films that we make will have this DNA in them. And whether anyone will appreciate it or not, it will make for works that are created out of a very deep tradition that somehow will communicate itself to the audiences worldwide who watch these movies or read their books 
or whatever it is that they're doing. Whereas the, the American inventory of beliefs, content, stories is so limited compared to what China has that American content creation now is really suffering. Chinese content creation can be infinite, but it has to be done with uh, creative integrity, which means you can't censor it. You have to let it be what it is to achieve the fullest expression of Chinese culture. So I'm just going to keep working on that. And hopefully, eventually, people in China will realize that that's actually good for China, not bad for China. Yeah. I don't think we could have ended on a more beautiful note. Thank you so much for the beautiful conversation. This was the China Hands podcast. And as always, thank you for tuning in.